0: Let's turn to uh, God's word for us this morning, and uh, we're looking at a couple of passages. Um, Proverbs 18:22, and Ephesians 5:29 to 33. Proverbs 18:22, Ephesians 5:29 to 33. Let's give our attentive listening to God's um, holy, inerrant word. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a God who is not silent, but a God who speaks, who reveals his will uh, to all who would hear. And Lord, we are here to receive that word, Um, and we pray you would uh, sow that word in our hearts so we can truly bear fruit through them. We can live them out and be reassured uh, of the, the identity you've given us as people of God, children of God, friends of God. Um, Lord, let this word uh, reorient us, redirect us to your kingdom, and, and lead us to walk more closely uh, with our Lord and our Savior. And we pray all this in his merciful name. Amen. Uh, so we're actually nearing very close now to the end of our series, In Pursuit of a Healthy Church. Um, next Sunday will be the last sermon in this series, and then we'll pick up on where we left off in Revelation. I don't know if any of you remember, we used to be in a series in Revelation, we stopped at chapter 19, we're going to pick up on chapter 20. Um, continuing in our series now, looking at some relational themes that are important in the church, and today we're going to address a topic that you cannot address entirely in one sermon, We're just going to scratch the surface here on the topic of marriage. And there are three sort of surfaces I want to kind of scratch here with three points today. I want to share with you with these couple passages. Uh, one, a, a defense of marriage. A defense of marriage, or an, a Christian word for it might be apologetics, meaning you answer objections to something, that's an apologetic. You, you answer commonly raised questions and objections about something. Right? So we'll do this sort of apologetic or defense of marriage. Point number two, the design, the design for marriage. And lastly, uh, the destiny of marriage, all right? a defense of marriage, the design for marriage, the destiny of marriage, these three, okay? So point number one, a defense. Proverbs says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor uh, from the Lord. Is that still true today? Um, Do people in our culture still believe that today? Uh, Study after study show that people today are actually postponing uh, marriage at an unprecedented rate. Um, For example, a third of all millennials, my generation, many of you are millennials, in the United States stay unmarried through age 40. 25% 25% don't marry at all, uh, which is the highest um, in terms of the proportion of any generation in modern history. We have the highest numbers. Why is that the case? Why is there such a reluctance to get married or enter into marriage or even touch marriage? Um, well, we addressed in the sermon on singleness that there are those who feel called to be single by God, and um, they, some of them are given that calling. And... There are blessings that come with that, along with the struggles that come with that, like anything else. And so to receive that call and to be single for life, that's perfectly biblical. Okay. But there are cultural reasons for these statistics that are not biblical. Um, I want to address kind of three for you. And they there are basically three fears that our culture has when it comes to marriage. Three fear factors, if you will. Okay, One is uh, economic stress. Two... Uh, the loss of individualism and three the number of failing marriages okay these are arguably the three biggest uh, fear factors that influence our culture's view on marriage today so let me just briefly expound on each of these and then explain also why proverbs despite all of this proverbs still remains true that when you find a spouse you find a good thing and there's enough favor there to to sustain you through that marital relationship despite all the challenges that come with it all right so first let's talk about the economic fear the general assumption behind the fear fear of financial resources lack of uh, financial resources is that married life is just a huge drain on on your your money and uh, your bank account especially with the the potential of having children so it's common for people today to think um, if, I'm, if I want to get married, a certain degree of financial security is required. I need to have a certain amount of income, a certain amount of savings, maybe even the readiness to buy a house. Is that uh, true? Well, it's generally true that you need to know how to hold a job. You need to know how to pay your bills, et cetera, et cetera. But traditionally and statistically, um, this, tr- this, this is half true. This needs some balancing. Traditionally, you didn't get married because you are economically stable, but in order to become economically stable. Um, and that's just not uh, obviously true given you have a right, joint income instead of just the single income. Um, but also because, where studies have shown, married couples provide each other greater level of accountability and self-discipline as a result than singles can acquire on their own. Okay. Even though marriage does bring new challenges to life, Marriage also provides enough mental, physical, health support from the marriage partner to withstand a lot of those challenges. All right, so we talked about the unique blessings that come with singleness. Well, these are unique blessings that come with marriage. Okay. So this fear in lacking resources and that somehow the remedy to that is stay single as long as you, you can is neither true traditionally nor statistically. Okay. Then there's the fear of losing your individualism. Because we live in a very individualistic culture. Um, Our parents' generation and their parents' generation, they very different. Uh, When it came to their self-identity, it was very common for them to define that according to their place in the family and their community. So they developed that identity more by fulfilling their duties to them and and fulfilling their responsibility to their community. But that seems to be no longer the, the case today. Who I am now must be acquired through um self-discovery not through my relationship to other people okay it's it's as i discover my deepest desires and express them whether it's through vocation through your academics through a certain way of lifestyle um, that's how i become more and more of this authentic self um, and and if my marriage is to be truly meaningful, I must find someone who will accept me on those terms, right? kind of leave me in my authentic self, if you will. It used to be, it was marriage that led to that kind of self-discovery, uh, but today it's the self-discovery that's sort of a precondition for marriage, meaning I must first realize fully Uh, what my authentic self is on my own and then find someone who will accept me on those terms. That's the individualistic approach to to marriage today. And this is reinforced in everything in our culture, like TV, movies, and social media, and uh, how celebrities conduct themselves. Your becoming true self is the hallmark of happiness, not being redefined by your relationship to other people. It's you remaining sort of self-expressive that gives you uh, the the happiness that you you long for so naturally right anything that seems to um, bind you permanently um, seems to feel like it seems to be a threat to your journey of self-discovery so one could naturally ask wonder what if for example having a spouse having children will get in the way of my self-discovery get in the way of me becoming more of my true self and reaching my truest individual potential. Okay? That's the fear uh, that individualism creates. And so again, even if you embark on the search for a spouse, it tends to become a search for someone who basically never changes who you are, um, but provide all the emotional, financial, temporal resources you need to achieve your goals and reach your individual potential. That's marriage as defined by um, our individualistic culture. But here's the problem that uh, exists within our individualistic culture. Individualism doesn't lead to greater self-realization, but rather more confusion and often more frustration. Why? Uh, Because, as it turns out, individuals are not simple. Individuals are not simple, but when you look inward, what you find is that you carry within yourself deep desires that contradict. Uh, We carry both fears and and hopes about things, about life. We carry anger and also compassion. Uh, We carry anxiety and confidence. We carry certainty as well as uncertainty. And the question then is, when you're looking inward to find out what your true self is, which of those things are you supposed to be listening to because they contradict? Or are all of these a representation of who you truly are? How are you supposed to make decisions about your future uh, only as you try to realize what your true self is when your true self seems to contradict itself? So here's a helpful quote from Tim Keller. He put it like this, We do not merely look within. You don't just look on the inside and discover from your feelings, from your self-conception, who you truly are. The traditional approach, he says, to marriage was wise in that people knew intuitively that it would profoundly shape and reshape our identity. And that's good because identity is always worked out in negotiation with significant others in your life. What better way to discover who you are than to marry someone you love and respect and figure it out together from there? So your true, authentic self-discovery can happen and often happens more when you look not merely inward, but more so outward to the community that you love and respect and trust. And let them shape you and reshape you. Marriage is one such community. It will therefore free you, not restrict you. Clarify your identity, not muddy it. You don't lose your individualism in marriage, but you regain it in a sense more holistic sense. Okay. Uh, the third and final fear our culture has about marriage is the fear of failure. And this fear naturally arises from seeing just how difficult other people's marriages are, whether it's our family members or friends, co-workers, things you see on social media, and that infamous statistic of 50% divorce rate in our, in our country today. And so you come to the very, in a sense, rational conclusion and self-protective kind of conclusion. I don't want anything to do with that. I'm not going to subject myself to that kind of pain and and heartache. Is that true? Well, it's not entirely true. Um, Let's start with the 50% divorce rate. University of Virginia actually did a research just a few years ago to see whether that number is really true across the whole entire religious spectrum. And they found that Christians, and not just people who call themselves Christians, but, quote, active active conservative Protestants who attend church regularly are actually 35% less likely to divorce than those who have no religious preferences. The 50% divorce rate across the board is not true. Okay, it's just not true. And yes, sometimes divorce is permissible. God makes room for that because there's sin in earthly marriage. So whether it's the sin of abuse, um, adultery, desertion, God makes room for, for divorce there. But here's what studies have also shown. Two-thirds of marriages that start off with struggles, and they're not entirely happy, uh, they become much happier within the first five years if they stay together. Okay. If they make it through the first few years, they have a much higher chance at a long-term uh, and happy marriage, meaning most divorces occur in those early years. And when the verbal commitment of a lifetime is not backed up by action, uh, that's when things begin to fall apart. The secret then is to not let the hardships weaken the covenant, but to hold on to the covenant through the hardships. And when you get through the first few years, uh, the studies are showing that you have a much higher chance of uh, having a lifelong um, marriage in which you thrive. Uh, The Atlantic also published an article a few years ago showing studies that that show that exposure to bad marriages doesn't make you enter a bad one yourself. It's the other way around. Uh, it's actually leading people to go against the bad examples and contribute to greater happiness in their own marriage. Okay. This is not too dissimilar from the way that many of us, coming from different churches before coming to NCA, have experienced bad things and um, have experienced church hurt. But yet, somehow, through that, you've become more discerning as a Christian, and you pursue a healthy church better uh, because of that experience that you've had. You're not stuck with church hurt uh, perpetually, like in this sort of cycle, but that has refined you and matured you in a way to contribute to building an even healthier church. And the same goes for marriage. Your exposure to bad marriages can very much be a contribution to you not only seeking out, but building A, healthy marriage in your own life. So all that to say, um, I think the wise man's words are still wise. He who finds a spouse finds a good thing. Not a perfect thing, but a good thing. And obtains favor from the Lord. Enough favor to get you through those hardships and trials that naturally come with marriage. But they will not completely derail you because God's favor will be with you. So that's some apologetics for marriage, a defense for marriage, if you will, against the three big fear factors that our culture has about marriage, all right? Point number two, the design then for marriage. Um, in Ephesians 5, verse 31, Paul says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this is a quote from Genesis, restated in Ephesians, and whenever the Bible does that, it's trying to reiterate, this is a... Timeless, universal truth God had established for humanity. And in this case, it is this one-man, one-woman union, a complementary union, therefore, that is a lifelong um, marital covenant. And it is bound by a covenant because that's what holding fast means. Holding fast means that you're bound to one another by a covenant or by a promise. As in, uh, in God's design, according to his design, your and my marital union, to our spouse is not to be forged and stitched together by our the intensity of our feelings or some intellectual certainty about someone, but by our promise to one another. Okay. Um, because that hold is the only hold that's strong enough to hold the marriage together. Feelings change. Your, your intellectual certainty can change and go up and down. Um, so rather than God, rather than putting our marriage Um, at the hands of our feelings and and our intellect, he puts it in the safe confines of our promise, the the marital vows we make to one another. And the benefit of this then is as a couple takes seriously the covenant they made with one another and before God, they now have a basis for loving one another even when their feelings are not always driving them to. Uh, Because the promise is not I love you ultimately because I feel like it, but I love you because I promised you that I will love you for better or for worse. And as you do that, as you strive to love someone this way, even as your feelings are waning, one, your feelings return, passions get rekindled, and two, you mature in your love because now your love is becoming more selfless, more enduring, long-suffering, and therefore worthy of treasuring that's built into God's design for marriage. It's a love that starts off like a a diamond that you just discovered at the bottom of the ocean floor, but through hardship, through trials, uh, staying together and keeping the covenant, it becomes more refined and polished over time. So the most glorious day uh, in your marital life is not your wedding day. Far from it, it's 10 years later, and 20 years later, and 30 years later, and 40 years later. It becomes more and more refined and polished. And also, as you hold on to this promise, you become one flesh. The the becoming one flesh happens with the covenant, with the promise. That's God's design as well. It's the holding fast that leads to the physical union of the husband and the wife. Uh, In other words, God's design for oneness is a holistic oneness, okay? Not just bodily, but also spiritual, emotional, intellectual, and directional oneness, all right? In the Christian worldview, therefore, um, sex and sexual union is so much more than just consenting to give someone your body. That's our cultural view of, of sex. You just consent. Give the, the person your consent to interact in a physical manner, then that's fine. According to the Bible, sex is not merely consensual. It's super consensual. And what I mean by that is it goes beyond consenting to give your body to someone. To giving your whole life to someone. And unless you have given your whole life to someone, you should not give your whole body to that person. It's not just consensual, it's super consensual. Okay. That's God's design. And if you, if, if we give ourselves any lesser of a commitment than that, it's dehumanizing to us. It doesn't, it doesn't confer enough dignity to image bearers of God. So, God's design is that we preserve the sexual union only in the context of the union of two lives. Okay, that's the backstory to the the age old youth pastor wisdom that he's been preaching to you, perhaps for for most of your youth group, right? Don't have sex before marriage. This is the this is the wisdom that's behind that, that that teaching that often sounds just moralistic, but there's something profoundly beautiful in, behind that, and that is. God wants you to be more dignified than that. He wants to honor you more than that because you deserve more than that. Uh, to safely give your body to someone that you have safely promised your whole life to. If you've crossed this line in thought, word, or deed, turn back. It's about, it's still about direction, not perfection. And there's a lot of mercy to, to go around uh, in this area. Um, here's something else that... Therefore, must also be part of God's design, given this kind of oneness, holistic oneness, and that is you must not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. You must marry a believer if you are a believer. Okay, Um, That's the reason why Scripture says that, like in 2 Corinthians 6. It's not because Christians are prejudiced against non-Christians. It's more for this profoundly practical reason. If your faith is a core part of who you are, and you ought to be able to share the core part of who you are with your lifelong partner and best friend in life. Well, if you have different faiths, that's just not going to happen. You're starting off your marriage with a disconnect. Right? Uh, in a sense, you're saying to your, your non-believing partner, there is a core part of me that's very important to me that you cannot access, but other people can. And that's not, that's not a good way to start a marriage. You're, you're starting off with a compromise. Right, Not with a holistic oneness, but a compromised oneness. And so spiritual friendship has to be an essential aspect of marriage. Otherwise, it's it's just not fair to the other person to withhold this core part of who you are from from your lifelong best friend, your marital partner. And it's a two-way street. It's not fair to them that you can't understand their atheism fully. It's not fair to them that you can't understand their Buddhism fully and participate in their atheism and Buddhism fully. It's not fair to them either. It's a two-way street. If this is going to be a holistic oneness, you've got to be able to share everything, especially the things that are very fundamental and core to who you are, your identity, like your faith. So spiritual friendship, absolutely important to um, everyone's marriage, if not the most important thing, because, I mean, um, everything else kind of wrinkles and dies away, right? You're, um, unfortunately, <laughs> you um, you lose your youthful appearance, right? You, you, you lose your... Um, um, physical uh, attractiveness over time, but but something something underlying that always remains, and that is your spiritual friendship with one another. and that's god's design. Um, just to kind of recap, right The promise must come before the passion and be gro- for the marital promise to be grounded in the promise and this oneness must be holistic, not partial, not broken up. and because of that, a believer must marry another believer and share this intimate spiritual friendship with one another. all right some aspects of the, the design of God for marriage. Now, here's point number three, the destiny of marriage. Paul goes on to say, verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Okay. He says there's a mystery to marriage, and um, that, that word means there's something about marriage that we ought to decipher and unlock and come to a deeper understanding of. If you're only looking at your earthly marriage on its own, uh, you haven't quite unpacked it fully. There's going to be kind of this question mark as to why is this not fully satisfying, because it's a mystery that refers to something else. There's a reference point, and, and Paul's very clear about what that reference point is. It refers to Christ and the church, Christ's love for the church, Christ's marriage to the church. All earthly marriages are meant to point to that. And until you do that, until you understand that, uh, your marriage still carries this question mark, as it were, as to is, is this all there is. Um, it refers to Christ entering the world, taking chosen sinners to be his forgiven, redeemed bride forever. All our earthly marriages are meant to point to this divine, eternal love, that Christ has for his people, the church. This is also why all earthly marriages come to an end at some point, even the happy ones. Death will do you part. Death will come and marriages will end. And then you will enter into the true and better marriage with Christ, the the reference point. That's the destiny of marriage. Revelation 19.7 talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb that's going to come at the end of the world that's the wedding day capital w wedding day that all other earthly wedding days are are pointing to and signifying it's why we want weddings to be so perfect uh deep down we we long for this true and better wedding where everything is perfect and flawless the bridegroom is perfect the the bride and her dress perfect we want it all to be perfect and flawless Because we have a longing deep down inside for this final and perfect wedding with God. That final wedding that will succeed where all earthly weddings and marriages fail. The final marriage where there is no disappointment in your spouse. No conflict with your spouse. No strife. No fears. No feeling of abandonment or loneliness or disillusionment. At that point... At the end of the world, both you and your spouse will be perfectly satisfied in the better better husband, the better spouse in Jesus. And you'll both be perfected in him. It doesn't mean you stop loving your spouse in heaven. No, but there'll be no marriage in heaven, no earthly marriage in heaven. There'll be love, however, uh, between you and your earthly spouse. And you'll be more satisfied, more united, and more perfected in God than you ever were in, in each other. I think, in a strange sense, I will love my wife more when we're unmarried in heaven than we're loving each other now as married couples here on earth. Why? Because finally, I will see my wife as her perfected self. And she will find me in my perfected self. And we will therefore love each other, enjoy each other even more than we ever enjoyed each other here on earth. And here we should be reminded once again what we talked about uh, when we talked about singleness. Every single person who never marries is headed towards the same destiny. You're headed towards marriage and the best one. It's your heavenly marriage with Christ. And we are to fix our eyes on that, whether you're single or married, fix our eyes on that and glory in that and hope in that then the mystery becomes clear then the fog clears uh, and you realize okay that's what I'm truly longing for uh, deep down inside and as we do this I think three things will happen one um, you'll no longer place your earthly spouse on a pedestal and you'll therefore be able to love them for who they are and live with them in grace give and receive forgiveness because you realize this isn't this is the one but it's not the perfect one this is the one uh, who is just as broken by sin as you, and you must therefore show grace, give and receive forgiveness. And two, therefore, you will avoid the anger and frustration that, that you feel in every conflict and, and, and the, the challenge to change for the better, for the other person. Uh, rather than that leading to anger and frustration, you realize this is to be expected given that you believe the only perfect version of you is on the other side of heaven, not here. So you do not have to be frustrated by your need to change and constantly grow and repent and mature. And it's, it's a great thing that in your interaction with your spouse, you're called to change and not remain as you are. And, and thirdly, and maybe perhaps more to the unmarried, I think this also then gives us this, this very needed sensitivity and care when it comes to how we talk to married people or talk about married people about their married marriage lives. Um, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. Okay? We talked about how we have to be sensitive in how we talk to singles, how we should be sensitive in talking to single, and uh, dating people. Um, but we also have to be sensitive in how we talk to married people about their marital life. Sin and brokenness are there. And it's it's unfair for us to talk to them and joke about their marital life as if everything is perfect, everything is rosy. Um, struggles in communication and uh, understanding one another are there. Uh, Loneliness is there. Struggle with sex life and sexual compatibility is there. Um, Struggle to conceive children is there. Miscarriages are there. Um, Grief for loss, recovery from a painful divorce. All of these things could be behind that person's story, and so we have to be careful with casual comments about their sex lives, about having children, about when are you going to have another one? Um, oh, it must be so wonderful for you because you found the one when I'm still single. Right. Uh, we have to be careful with comments like that. Okay. And, and I have definitely failed in this, and I need your grace in that area. And, and others will fail you. And I hope you also be gracious towards them as well. On this side of heaven, we have to realize until we meet really the true One, in Jesus Christ, we're all suffering misery because of the presence of sin and brokenness. Whether you're single or married, okay. So let's be let let our speech be seasoned with salt, okay, and be wise. Um, as we remember this destiny uh, for our marriage, I think, um, there, I think there are still things that we can, we're encouraged to not only keep in mind but to work on on this side of heaven. That's what I want to close with in closing. Two encouragements, one perhaps more for the singles and, and the other more for the married. What does it look like as a um, husband and wife hold fast to one another and better love and respect one another? I want to leave you with some foundational habits for that. But here, here's a quote from C.S. Lewis I want to share with you, especially those of you who are single, those of you who are kind of maybe wondering after the, the, the talk on singleness whether you might be called to be single, there's, a, there's usually this kind of lingering fear, like, and maybe you can call it a FOMO. Uh, what if I never get married and Jesus comes back and I have never experienced the joy of marrying someone, finding my right partner, and the, the, the joy of sexual intimacy and all those things? And I end up in heaven where there is no marriage, there is no sex. C.S. Lewis got a question like that. um, And he, he had written this answer, this response, and I want to share it with you. Quote, I think our present outlook might be like that of a small boy who on being told that the sexual act was the highest bodily pleasure should immediately ask whether you ate chocolates at the same time. On on receiving the answer, no, he might regard the absence of chocolates as the chief characteristic of sexuality. In vain would you tell him that the reason why lovers in their raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think of. The boy knows chocolate. He does not know the positive thing that excludes it. We are in the same position. We know sex. We do not know, except in glimpses, the other thing which in heaven will leave no room for it. Okay. So like a little five-year-old boy, let's say, who, whose greatest pleasure in life is chocolates and doesn't understand the, the higher goods, we are like that. Perhaps in our very hyper-sexualized culture as well, we know nothing but sex and not understand that heavenly pleasures that come from the right hand of God in the presence of God are infinitely greater than any earthly pleasures that we can ever experience. That His pleasures are higher than our pleasures. Um, if that's true, between the conception of a five-year-old and a thirty-eight-year-old man, right? Am I thirty? I'm turning thirty. Right. If if that's the gap between two human beings, how wide do you think the gap will be between the conception of us and the Almighty God and the pleasures that He has in store for us, right? Um, that's not a bad way to deal with our FOMO for those of you who are single. Um, here's, here's what I want to close with for the married. Let me just give you five, very briefly, foundational habits and behaviors that singles you can practice now too if you're dating. Um, but for those of you who are married especially, I want to encourage you to hold fast to this as a way of implementing what Paul says to better love and respect one another as husband and wife. Okay, um, Five foundational habits, behaviors. One, um, regularly, regularly talk to each other about God. Talk about God in your life. Talk about what God is showing you. Talk about what you're learning from Him, what you're learning from His Word. Talk about what you need from God, how you're praying to God, how you're praying for one another. Very important, what you're confessing before God. Okay, uh, The sins that often manifest itself in marriage how are you confessing that before god and therefore you can confess more readily with your spouse how is god challenging you during this season how is he maturing you during this season how is he changing you during this season always keep god in your dialogue so you have this true reference point for your marriage in view okay. that's number one develop your spiritual friendship just by regularly talking to each other about god Two, um, learn each other's love languages and And offer it to one another and very important update each other on how your love languages are evolving because they do change over time never stop learning about the other person always learn something new about your spouse especially um, how to love them how they how they sense love how they receive love number three be intentional especially after the honeymoon phase is over be intentional about giving and receiving sex you know, sexual energy is like any other kind of energy. You, you hit highs and you hit lows. Okay? Um, and over time, when you pass the honeymoon phase and sort of the, you know, your brain sort of tells you, okay, that's over with, <laughs> um, you have to be consistent in exercising what God has gifted, gifted married couples with in order to bodily express what they have ver- verbally expressed at the altar. Okay. Express with your bodies what your, what your vows have expressed in the, at the altar. Um, but don't buy into the illusion that it will always be this honeymoon high. But understand, you have to approach this with intentionality. As our bodies change, our brain chemistry changes, life seasons change. Um, as one person is more interested, the other person is more disinterested. Um, there are all kinds of imbalances. What's important is that we don't give up, but that um, even if you are... Less of a joyful recipient of it, learn to be a more joyful giver of it. Okay. Um, it's important for husband and wife to remember bodily what they had vowed verbally. All of me belongs to you. All of you belongs to me. Will there be seasons where you, where you need to take a break? Absolutely. Okay. Um, but strive to regularly communicate sexually what you should communicate verbally, covenantally uh, to your spouse. Number four, um, every other year, sit down five seven sessions for couples counseling i call that getting an oil change okay before something major happens just do the minor maintenance every other year at least and refine your communication conflict resolution um be more preventative learn how to learn more about the other person apply biblical counsel to your situations Um, and you can receive that from me or from any other christian counselor but but get this right Uh, and lynn and i have Benefited tremendously from the, the marriage counseling we've been getting from a counselor, not from our church, but just a Christian counselor. And even if it was working on minor issues, um, it really helps you in preventing any major issues in the future. All right. Every other year, sit down for some couples counseling. Fi- uh, five, never stop being here and worshiping together and stand shoulder to shoulder as you behold your truer and better spouse. And remember, okay, he's the one, not not this person. He's the one, and we both need this person. And as long as we, we hold on to this person and he's holding on to us, we will be okay. Always find yourself here where you have that th- very important third person in your relationship. Okay, um, Marriage is not a tango. It takes more than two. Right. It takes husband and a wife and their vows, and it takes God. And, and this village of people called huh? the brothers and sisters of Christ. And I think as you practice these five foundational things. Um, you'll never graduate from them. I think what you will find is, um, at the 10-year mark, you've, you have acquire some familiarity with it, perhaps, right? You may still feel very unfamiliar with it, actually. But at the 20-year mark, you might, you might say, okay, we're, we're getting the hang of this. And then the 30-year mark, let's keep doing this, 40-year, uh, 50-year. Uh, these are the fundamentals that you never graduate from, so, so stick to them and get into the practice of these things. And I think God will bless you in your marriage. And uh, again, those of us who are single, called to be single, remember all the blessings that come with our final and ultimate marriage to Christ. They're yours. And married people have to long for that ultimately. Single people have to long for that ultimately. Let's keep our eyes there and all our hopes there. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and um, your design uh, for marriage. Uh, Lord, I pray that um, even though we're just scratching the surface here, that that you would uh, continue to build on the foundation you built for us and help us, therefore, to uh, uh, go about it, seeking it, sustaining it, and um, blessing it the way that you, you want it to be. Um, and. Lord, we confess our weakness, Lord. We often find ourselves discouraged by the presence of sin and brokenness in our marriage, but in our singleness as well, in, in dating relationships. Lord, we need you uh, first to set our eyes on our ultimate hope that isn't here, uh, but is in Christ, uh, at his right hand, uh, in his kingdom. So transfer our hope there. And in the meantime, in the here and now, God, uh, empower us by the love of Christ, by the gospel of Christ, by the cross of Christ, to love the way he's loved us and and make that love more tangible and visible uh, in our relationships. God, we pray this for our church. We pray this for our brothers and sisters and we pray that, therefore, you will build a healthy community here. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.